Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in a moment in verse number 21. I'm going to be talking about doctrine, and this is what makes this so exciting, is I'm going to use a term, and your eyes are going to glaze over, but the way Luke presents it is exciting. Luke is teaching us about the hypostatic union. I'm not going to ask anybody to define that because most of you probably have no idea what that is. But the hypostatic union, and I'm going to get into this, I'm going to repeat myself just a little bit, is the teaching that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he has to be that way. But the way Luke presents it, to me, is just very exciting and very practical. So if you'll stand with me, we'll begin reading Luke chapter 3. Verse number 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maeth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmedem, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melea, I'm sorry, the son of Mina, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nasham, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Exciting reading, isn't it? <laughs> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the word of God. Every word is from you. Every word is authoritative. And every word is beneficial. I ask, Lord, that as we uh, look at Scripture, 
and we hear the word not only being read but preached, that you will encourage our hearts, change our hearts, and help us to better uh, glorify you in everything that we think, everything that we say, and everything that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much. You know, during his earthly ministry, God wa- or Jesus was uh, 100% fully God, and he was 100% fully human. Now, if you believe that, answer yes. Okay. If you answer yes to both of these statements, then you are or- an Orthodox Christian, small o, Orthodox. Being orthodox means that you have sound biblical doctrine, is all it means. But in math, 100% plus 100% equals how much? 200%. So it seems like a contradiction that, the, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Just doesn't seem right because we know what 100 plus 100 is, our inflation rate. Um <laughs> However, this this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. Theologians have a term for this, as I already used. It's called the hypostatic union. And to be an Orthodox church, or to be or a Christian, to be Orthodox, I'm sorry, a church or a Christian must affirm that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now there are four statements that every sound church must affirm. When I teach the new members class and I go through Trinitarian doctrine, I say it in three, the same statements. But here are the four statements you must affirm. Number one, I'm sorry, my slides are, we are way off. Can you go, there we go, all right. I I must have been pressing the button, I didn't even realize it. I'm going to put that down. The four statements are this, Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine, amen? Jesus Christ is fully and completely human, correct? Yes. The divine and human natures of Christ are distinct. They're not, they're not, they're completely separate. They're distinct from each other, right? And the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united into one person. You must believe those four statements to be a sound Christian and to be in a sound church. Now, The reason I mention this is in its early years, the church had to deal with six historical heresies about Christ. And all of them, all of these heresies, denied one of these statements in different ways. If you want to know more, let me give you an easy way to find it. If you have an ESV study Bible, you turn to page 2519. Seriously. 2,519, you're going to find a chart on these six heresies. If you want to read more about the hypostatic union, pages 2515 to 2519 are excellent reading. Don't read them now. Stick a bookmark in there and read them later for your own edification on your day off tomorrow for 4th of July or something. But I'm, but I'm being dead serious. The, the ESV study Bible, the section there, is excellent reading and it's excellent information if you, if you want to know more about this. Now, I'm going to give you a couple just to give you a sample of some of the heresies that were out there in the first 400 years of church history. The first one is the docetic history 
uh, docetism, and it says this, uh, that the body of Christ was just an illusion. He didn't have an actual body. Everybody just thought he had a body. That was an illusion. Another one, which we're more familiar with, is Arianism. Arianism says that the Son was created by the Father, therefore the Son was not God. Now the modern day um, Jehovah's Witnesses are Arians. Same heresy. It's been around for uh, almost two millennia. And so these are a couple of the heresies about the hypostatic union that you run into. But in the passage that we read, Luke affirmed both the deity and the humanity of Christ, and he did it in an incredibly practical way. It's almost, almost as if the Lord knew that men would either deny that Jesus was God or Jesus was a man. How did he know that? Right? He's omniscient. He has all the foreknowledge. But first of all, Jesus is God. Now, now, Luke affirms the deity of Christ in the strangest way, if you think about it. If you're going to say, write something and affirm the deity of Jesus Christ, how would you do it? Well, the way Luke did it was through Jesus' baptism. Isn't that kind of strange? Why did Jesus even need to be baptized? This is the real puzzle that we face. It hardly seems appropriate, right? John was baptizing people into repentance for the forgiveness of sin. However, was Jesus a sinner? No. So therefore, he needed neither to repent nor to be forgiven. So it brings us back to the question, why was he baptized? I'm not going to go into it. Matthew presents it a different way and drives it a different truth at his baptism. But Luke is driving for something else. Jesus did not need to be baptized for the forgiveness of his own sins, obviously. Uh, Nevertheless, he was baptized. He didn't have to do this, but he chose to. And as a sin bearer, and this is important, as a sin bearer, Jesus needed to enter into his people's indebtedness before God. And so therefore, he had to become one with them, sort of a solidarity. He was entering into the sin of the people. He didn't commit sin, but he needed to enter into the sin of people as the Lamb of God. It was an act of solidarity. Jesus was taking the place of sinners. Does that make sense? He didn't sin. He never committed a sin. He went through all, and we'll see that in chapter 4 next, next week. He, he entered into temptation and went right through it. But he needed solidarity with the people, therefore he was baptized. The condescension is stunning, isn't it? He left the throne in heaven. He left the multitudes of heavenly beings glorifying him, constantly singing praise to him to come down to earth and identify with his creatures. He identified with us in our weakness because as we'll see, he was 100% man as well. Not only did he come down and, and condescend that way, but he fulfilled Isaiah 53 in verse number 12 where it says 
that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sin of many, and now he makes intercession for those transgressors. Amen? Wonderful truth. The choice that Jesus made at his baptism was the choice that ultimately led him to the cross. He had he was willing to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners could be saved. And so he was baptized. John uh, quoted John Stott so well today. This is what Jesus did for our salvation. But Luke, did you notice how Luke says it? Jesus was baptized. That's it. That's all he said. He was less interested in the baptism itself as what happened afterwards. Luke 3, 21, look there with me if you will, tells us that the heavens were opened. Now that sounds like a, a real benign thing to say, right? The heavens were opened. Mark says it a different way. You know how Mark says it? Mark says that the heavens were torn open. The heavens were torn open. This was a dramatic event. It wasn't, oh, there's Jesus being baptized and, and oh, the heavens were opened. No, this was, the heavens were torn asunder by God opening up. And in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, when the heavens are open, they're open before God reveals something. Did you know that? The heavens always open or I'm sorry, always when the heavens open, God is revealing something. For example, Isaiah 64 and verse number one says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah is calling for the Lord to, to reveal himself. And when he does, Isaiah already knew the heavens would be torn open. Ezekiel began his book with the openings of heavens. He says, As I was among the exiles by the Chibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and what? I saw visions of God. Wouldn't you love to have the heavens opened? Oh, come on. <laughs> all right, let's just pack up and go home if that's all you're going to think of. You would love to have the heavens opened, wouldn't you? But those heavens open when God reveals something. I'm going to give you something profound. And I really want you to think and appreciate this. And that is this. We don't need the heavens to be opened. Do you know why? Because whenever we read scriptures, the heavens are open for us. Why? Why? Because whatever we read in the Bible... Is, is a direct revelation of living God. A direct revelation. Why? Why would someone skip reading this? Why would someone not want to read the very words that the living God wants you to know? Everything that He wants us to know about Himself are contained in this book. Why would we not read it with bated breath? Why would we not be excited every time we read God's Word? 
Because every time we pick it up and every time we read it, the heavens are being opened to us so that we know more about Him. We have it right here. Now look at verse number 21 again. I want you to notice something else. When did all this happen? Well, some people will say, well, when he was baptized. No, that's not what Luke said. Luke's the detail person. He's always into the details. And the detail that he includes is this. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. So when did it happen? Not at the baptism. Jesus began to pray after his baptism, and that's when the heavens were opened. Since eternity passed, Jesus was, the, was in intimate fellowship with the Father and, with, and, and the Spirit. And this didn't stop because he assumed a human body. Wouldn't you like to know what he was praying at that time? What would he pray after his baptism? Maybe he was asking the Father to confirm his status as a son. Maybe he was asking the Spirit to anoint him for ministry. Or maybe he was simply enjoying the fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, dwelling in that sweet communion that all three persons of the Trinity share with the Godhead, or within the Godhead. All we know for certain is how his prayers were answered. As Jesus prayed, the Spirit of God and the Word of God came down from heaven. As he prayed, the skies were open, split open by the hand of God. And then verse number 22, look at it. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Now, language is very important here. Language is very important. The Holy Spirit came down in bodily form, and what was visible was not a dove. That's a misreading of the text. He came down in bodily form and he came down in the manner that a dove would come. His descent was like a dove floating gracefully through the air. It wasn't a dove. He's describing the manner of his descension. By the way, let me say this. There are a lot of pictures out there of Jesus and a dove. By the way, you know what that's called? That's called a graven image. A graven image is what we use, we construct, so that we can understand or worship God in a way. And the problem with a graven image, and I, I've talked about this before, is that a graven image can only communicate one or two dimensions or just a couple dimensions of who God is. And the image of God that God ordained for the world to see are you and me. We were created in the image of God. We are called Christians, right? So therefore, we are the ones to image God because we can image all of his communicable attributes, can't we? And that's, that's why we need to be very careful about images that we have and, and the images that we have. But anyway, I will say it was not a dove. 
the Spirit came down in the manner that the dove would come down. But what is important here, the most important thing, is that this was a theophany. A theophany is a visible appearance of, the, of God's invisible Spirit. This is a public event. This wasn't private. The Gospel tells us that both John and Jesus saw the Holy Spirit coming down, presumably all, everybody else did too that was witnessing the baptism. And the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Savior. Now I have a question. Does this then mean that Jesus did not yet have the Spirit? That up until this time, Jesus didn't have the Spirit. The answer to that, the Bible is very clear, is that Jesus already had the Spirit. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 35. He was filled with the Spirit's wisdom in chapter 2 and verse number 40. And so that brings us to a question, what was this visible event about? What was it for? The Spirit made a public declaration that he was with Jesus for ministry. That was a public declaration. And we see the implication of this all the way through the Gospels. If you're in chapter 3 of Luke, look at chapter 4 and verse number 1. Chapter 4, verse number 1 says what? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So immediately, right after the Spirit descends, shows that he is going to be with Jesus, Jesus goes out in the fullness of the Spirit. So it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus resisted temptation, right? It's very important for us to understand. He did it through the power of the Spirit. He preached the kingdom of God through the Spirit in chapter number 4. He worshipped the Father in heaven through the Spirit in Luke chapter 10. He performed miracles by the power of the Spirit, Matthew chapter 12. It was also by the Spirit that he offered his body on the cross for sins. That's according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 14. And he was raised to give us eternal life according to chapter 1 of Romans. Chapter 1 and verse number 4. Even for all his dignity, Jesus did not do all these things alone, independently, by his own intrinsic power. Jesus could have done all of this in his own power, right? He's God. He's got the power. But he depended upon the Holy Spirit. This was the publicly validated ministry of the Spirit at his baptism. And it was, it was sub subsequently demonstrated in his miraculous ministry. Peter, an eyewitness to this, Peter was preaching a sermon. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 10 and verse number um, uh, and I'm, I'm off on my slides. I'm having trouble with my slides today. I'm sorry about that. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. What did, G, what did Peter say here? These are not two dis, disconnected statements. He's saying one statement. He went uh, with the Holy Spirit in power. And these are the things he did in that power. Isn't that the implication of the verse? It very clearly is. Now I want you to think about something. Think about everything that Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit and realize this. 
that same Spirit rests on you. That same glorious Spirit descended on us when we were saved. Christ gives the Spirit a superior baptism to the one administered by John. We saw that uh, two weeks ago. The Spirit Jesus gives is the same mighty Spirit that was with Him for ministry, working miracles and, and blessing His teachings. And now we serve Jesus in the same power by the same Spirit. Trusting Him to make our words and deeds effective in bringing people to Christ and helping them to grow in the knowledge of God. And one more very important application. Don't you want to minister in the power of the Spirit? Parents, don't you want to have the wisdom of the Spirit of Almighty God as you uh, teach your children? Don't you want to tell people about Jesus Christ in the, in the power of the Spirit? Don't you want to teach Sunday school classes and children's church and all these things in the power of the Spirit? Then there's one more important thing that you must realize, and that is this, that it came in conjunction with prayer. It came in conjunction with prayer. There is a direct correlation between prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit. Prayer and the work of the Spirit go hand in hand. It is God's power or God's Spirit that gives life, empowers us to obey, strengthens our witness, causes us to grow, imparts wisdom, illuminates our mind to understand the Word, changes the hearts of leaders and people, and I could go on and on and on. Don't you want God's Holy Spirit doing His work in your life? Your family's life? and the life of this church, then listen once again to the words of Jesus. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We ask, and we ask consistently, and we ask constantly, give us the power of this Holy Spirit. That was my prayer all the way back on Tuesday when I began looking at this passage. Lord, Illumine, illumine my mind. Give me understanding of this passage that's set before me. Later on in the week, then it's, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help me to write the very words that you want me to say today. And then after that, it, it has been all weekend long. Lord, will your Holy Spirit take your words and change the hearts of the people who hear it? That is the way ministry is done. That is the way the Christian life is lived. I pray that the Holy Spirit will give me a spirit of wisdom and holiness. I pray that the Holy Spirit will work a great work in your life. That the Holy Spirit will create in us a burning love for God and Jesus and a love for one another. And I pray that God's Holy Spirit will make us holy. That He will set us apart. That He will sanctify us for the Father's use. And we should pray. And we should pray together, shouldn't we? We pray individually and we gather corporately to pray. And when Jesus ascended, he told his disciples to wait for the coming of the Spirit. That's how important it is. Think of the, uh, think of the continuity. He ministered 
three and a half years in the power of the Spirit, then on the night of his betrayal, and then again when he was ascending into heaven, he instructed his disciples, remain in Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke records it this way in the book of Acts. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And what were they doing in that one place? They were praying. And look at how Luke says, verse number 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that was the day where there was a great turning to God in Jerusalem under the, the preaching of the Apostle Peter. I was talking to Steve Mooring today, and it reminded me once again of what I've read numerous times about Charles Spurgeon. Do you know who Charles Spurgeon is? Charles Spurgeon was that great uh, English preacher in London from the 19th century, and he would tell people that the, the, the greatest ministry, the power in his pulpit, and he preached to great crowds of people, the 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 energy behind that preaching came from under the pulpit. And he would take people back there, and there was a little room under the platform in the base of that church where people gathered every Sunday morning to pray for the Holy Spirit to work in hearts and in lives. And that is what we need. Prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. And God is pleased when His people pray for the Holy Spirit. Whether, they, whether that prayer is privately in your home or publicly on Wednesday mornings and moms in prayer or Wednesday uh, prayer, evening prayer time, by the way, which is this week. We have a Wednesday evening prayer time. Or even on Sunday mornings when we gather to pray for the morning service. Uh, God is pleased when we pray. And you do not exactly know what God is doing through His Holy Spirit when you pray, but you have the promise that He gives it. I wish you could sit in my shoes sometimes. You come here on Sunday morning. You might know a little bit about what's going on in church, but I get the privilege of hearing of all the different things that God is doing in people's lives. I love it when people stop me in the hallway or stop me here and say, let me tell you what God did. And they tell me something that happened. I had a conversation with someone earlier this morning who was telling me about an opportunity they had to witness to somebody. And witnessing is going on all the time. And I love hearing the stories. And I love seeing the different things that God is doing in the ministries of the church as well. And so we continue to pray. And, and, and we, we continue to ask for the Holy Spirit to come in our life. And so now let's go back to Luke chapter 3 and verse number 22 because there's one more thing that came from heaven. You know what it was? It was a voice. It was a voice that came from heaven. And what did it say? It said, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. Now Luke draws our attention to the revelation of God in his triune being. All three persons of the Trinity were present at the baptism. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And whenever the God does anything important, which of course is every, it's everything He's ever done, right? It is the work of the entire Trinity. In, in here, 
we see that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was praying. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descended from heaven. And God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, pronounced His benediction on the Son. The Son prayed, the Spirit descended, and the Father spoke. And they always work in conjunction. You can read your Bibles, and if I ask you a question, who intercedes for us, who are you going to say? A lot of us are going to say Jesus does. Some others of us are going to say the Spirit does. And others of us may, although much fewer, will say the Father does. Well, guess what? You're all correct because the Bible says that all three of us intercede for us in prayer. All three were involved in creation. All three are involved in our redemption because when God does things, the entire Trinity is doing it. Now, the blessing of the Father is the climax of this passage. The exaltation of the Christ as the only Son of God is the most important thing here. Luke shows that this climax is this is the climax by making the speaking of God's voice in verse number 22, the main verb. That's the main verb of the passage. The most important thing in this passage is what the Father said about the Son. Everything else is subordinate to this declaration. You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And God said this, how? Did he whisper it? Was it, hey, Jesus, come here, let me tell you something. I know you didn't know this. No. God did it with an audible voice so that people could hear what he is saying. He wanted everyone to know that Jesus Christ is his eternal son, the mightiest one of all. And it's extremely important to note two words that the father used to describe his relationship to the son. There's two words that describe this relationship. Number one, affection. Affection. He said, you are my beloved son. The son is beloved by the father, and that is their eternal relationship. This echoes God's declaration in the Old Testament about Israel's king and ultimately the Messiah. Think about a messianic passage in Psalm chapter 2 in verse number 12, uh, 7 when he talks about the Messiah. He said, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There it is. Messianic declaration. He's talking about King David and he's talking about David's ultimate son. We have another one in Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul, what? Delights. I have put my, what? Right there. The Messiah is delighted in by the Father, and the Father sends the Spirit to assist him in ministry. But there's a second word in Luke 22, and it's the word approval. He said, I am well pleased. He was pleasing to the Father just because he was the Son. And the Father, but the Father was also pleased by the Son's obedience, wasn't he? He, he submitted to baptism. By doing this, he took part in sinful humanity. By agreeing to carry out the great task that the Father had given him to suffer and die for sinners. God was pleased with that. And so the Father blessed him. 
And as the Son did the work of our salvation, the Father was, ble- was pleased with everything that He did. Everything. Kids, teenagers, listen to this. God was pleased by His obedience to His parents. Try that one on for size. And we already learned some months ago that he was smarter than his parents. He knew more than his parents. He was more holy than his parents. And yet he obeyed his parents. You got that, kids? I know you're smarter than your parents. But you're still supposed to obey them. That's tongue-in-cheek. Where was I? He was pleased with the miraculous um, healing. He was pleased with his teaching. He was pleased with Jesus' life of prayer. He was pleased most of all by the sinful sacrifice that he offered on the cross. We know this because he raised Jesus from the dead, which is the ultimate proof of his approval, wasn't it? The Father was pleased with all of it. He was pleased with what Jesus had done, what Jesus was doing, and what Jesus would do. He took pleasure in the person and work of his Son, Here's the really good news. If you believe in Jesus for your salvation, then God is just as pleased with you. The Father's words of affection and approval are for His Son and for everyone who has faith in His Son. Because Jesus came to bring the Father's love I want you to think about something. This is hard for people to wrap their minds around. The things that we do are not pleasing to God. If if we were to stand before God the Father on our own merit, we would never gain His approval and we would never deserve His affection. Isn't that true? (laughs) But praise be to God. We don't stand before the Father by our own merit, do we? As soon as we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we stand before the Father on the merit of His Son. And now, the Father looks on us with the same affection and same approval that He has for Jesus Christ, His worthy Son. Exact same. The sun is our hope when we are lonely. He is our joy when we are anxious. He's also our joy when we're burdened by the excessive weight of our sin. I cannot wait to get to heaven and hear the words that he will give to all his children. You know what he's going to say to all of us who are in Christ? You are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. Jesus said it in a parable, didn't he? Well done, good and faithful servant. There's not a one of us that's faithful, are we? We're not consistent. And that's why he can look at us through Jesus Christ and say, well done, faithful servant. Wonderful truth, isn't it? Well, that's Jesus as God. I know what you're thinking. Okay, you're going to go another 30 minutes? I'm not. I promise. Jesus is man. We're going to reread that whole... No, I'm just kidding. 
We're not going to do that. I want to make this quick. Luke said, verse number 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And so begins Luke's genealogy. Now, if we take the time to examine the genealogy by Luke we're, and compare it closely with the, the genealogy of Matthew, we're going to find some discrepancies, aren't we? I'm not going to take the time to go into the, the, all the theories and all the discrepancies. I'll just say this. Why does Matthew give one list and Luke another? The answer is that Matthew was bringing his gospel to Jewish Christians and Jews. And, most, and to them, the most important issue is not the virgin birth but whether Jesus was the legal descendant of David. Doesn't that make sense? Because the Messiah must be of the lineage of David. And that lineage goes legally through Joseph, and that's why the genealogy of Matthew begins with Abraham. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, the genealogies are reversed, aren't they? Matthew 1 begins with Abraham. Matthew's genealogy stops with Abraham, and Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish nation, so Matthew is showing the Jewish credentials of the Christ. Luke, by verse number 38, has taken us all the way back to Adam, who was the son of God. Luke is showing the universality of the mission of Christ. Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews. He's for the Gentiles, for the Romans and the Greeks. Jesus is the new Adam the author of a new humanity, the one who comes to redeem and to reconcile men from every tribe and nation, not merely giving himself as a ransom for the lost sheep of Israel, but pouring himself out as a substitute for the whole human race, for the sinful children of Adam's race. The people he came to save were people like us. They were sinners. They were idolaters and murderers and liars and cheaters and adulterers. And this is why we all need to be saved. Our sins have separated us from God and doomed us to die. But by his virgin birth, by his perfect obedience, and by the protected power of the Holy Spirit, he lived a life that was holy unto God. And he was born into a fallen race of sinners so that he could rescue us from our sins. He had to be fully man. Now Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore, he made him like his brothers in every respect. I'm sorry, let me read that again. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? What does a priest do? To make propitiations for the sins of the people. Let me, set, let me sum it all up and we'll be done. In other words, he had to become one of us to save us, didn't he? His genealogy proves that he did become one of us. And therefore, he was able to offer his body, the body of a true and perfect man, an actual body for all our sins when he died on the cross. And this is the Savior that God has sent to save everyone who trusts in Him. 
we can count on Him for eternal life, believing for sure that what the Bible says about who He is is true. He is Jesus, the son of Eli, the son of David, the son of Judah, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of God. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. And that's the only way that he could secure our salvation and and ultimately our salvation and also our uh, affection and our approval when we get to heaven. Amen? Amen? So exciting, isn't it? Such a short source of joy. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the, the Scripture. We confess that we do not read Scriptures like we should. We do not pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit like we should and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit like we should. Lord, I pray that you will instill in us a new love for Jesus Christ, that you will instill in us a burning passion for his glory, that, Lord, you will impel us to pray, pray privately for the work of the Holy Spirit, pray together publicly for the working of the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit will do its mighty work in the lives of the people who hear right now. And that, that that work will, when they go from here, will not be limited to the people that are here, but they will min- actively minister to other believers and that they will actively witness to those who need to hear the truth that Jesus saves sinners. In Christ's name we pray, amen.